Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 648 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 8th of October 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Beth Kempton about writing fearlessly, tapping into flow and keeping a part of your writing practice sacred, as well as how the concept of wabi-sabi can help writers with an acceptance and appreciation of impermanence, imperfection and the incomplete nature of everything. We also talk about seasonality in our work saying no, (laughs) which I struggle with and I know many of you do, and balancing time between creativity and the job of being a writer. So that's coming up in the interview section. So not too much in publishing, but combining publishing with the futurist stuff, which has kind of merged into the current things, uh, thanks to Steph Pajonas, who let me know that Kobo Writing Life actually allowed direct upload of AI narrated audiobooks, which I then verified with Tara over at Kobo Writing Life. So yes, you can now upload AI narrated audiobooks direct to Kobo. And what's interesting is I did some AI narrated audiobooks with DeepZen uh, before Google put out their auto narration. And those audiobooks I did with DeepZen, they're everywhere except Audible. Uh, but they're on Apple, they're on Spotify, they're on Google Play, they're on Kobo, as well as Nextory, BookBeat, and some other smaller vendors. I think they might be in the library stores if you have a look. Uh, a Thousand Fiendish Angels, there are two versions. One, I narrated. Uh, it's a trilogy of short stories. One is, yeah, I narrated. And the other is uh, AI with a male voice. So, and it's so funny. <laughs> Somebody emailed me and said that they thought the female AI voice was was not great. And <laughs> I was like, no, 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 the AI was the male. I was the female. So this is what's so funny now. I, I think everyone hears differently and some people don't know. Now, I do label things and I think this is very important. And Tara mentioned that in her email. She said, you know, make sure people label them as AI narrated or digitally narrated, however you want to do it. So I think that's really interesting because, of course, we've talked before, uh, you can use Google auto narration to create if you're uh, wide with your ebooks because it's based on an ebook. Uh, you can do that to create your audio and now you can sell them on Kobo and getting onto those other stores. So I don't know how you would get audiobooks onto Apple. Uh, I mean, Deep Zen distribute there, but at the moment, Findaway Voices don't allow AI. But given that they're now owned by Spotify, perhaps that's something that's coming. Who knows? But <laughs> uh, Audible does seem to be the mainstream holdout. But given how advanced Amazon AI voices, I just can't see how they won't get into it eventually. But will 2023 be the year of mainstream AI narration? Now, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I am usually five years early. And I've been talking about it since 2019. The very early stages of 2019 was when I can find evidence of me talking about this. So basically, that would say that would suggest that 2024 might be the year. (laughs) We shall see. 
but you you heard it first here. Uh, I'm also listening to Rule of the Robots by Martin Ford, which, if you are t- at all interested in the future stuff, is really interesting. I'm listening to the audiobook, but I also bought the hardback. And this week I'm going to Wired Smarter, a, a full day event in London with lots of speakers, including um, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, who is uh, famous sort of for starting the original internet. And there are speakers from Amazon, from all kinds of really interesting companies doing interesting things with futurist stuff. So I will report back on that. I also have a discussion coming on AI art. Uh, since generative AI with visual uh, images and now even video, is, um, I'll talk all about this in the episode, but I'm getting a lot more questions. And I think what's happened this year, even in the last few months, generative AI for images has sort of catapulted AI creativity into the AI assisted creativity I should call it into the more of the mainstream so uh, I'll be talking more about that and also if this is an area that you're interested in I have a new podcast on my feed uh, Moonshots and Mindsets with Peter Diamandis and his guests so Peter founded the XPRIZE and has co-founded many companies in this sort of futurist sphere human longevity space AI and uh, he co-founded Singularity University and I listen to their podcast and read their blog and I've been following Peter for years and reading his books, listening to his other podcast, Exponential Wisdom, attending webinars and so I'm excited about his show and many of you have asked how I stay so positive and upbeat about the future and Peter is definitely part of that positivity. It's we often talk about how to make sure you well, you you have to keep things clean in your mind and you have to choose what you consume in order to create the conditions in your own mind for what you want. And so I choose voices to I mean, I could listen to doom and gloom and terror, but I don't. I listen to positive voices who believe in the, you know, 51 (laughs) percent. of humanity. If we could just be 51% good, then things will turn out okay. That's kind of the attitude that that comes originally from Kevin Kelly and Kevin Kelly would be another one. But yes, um, anyway, wanted to mention a few of those things in case you're interested. So in my personal update, well, <laughs> life has thrown a curveball this week in that we had this tiny drip from our shower down into the kitchen, like barely one sheet of kitchen paper to, you know, dab it up. But uh, <laughs> it turned into a pretty major issue when the plumber got behind the wall and into the floor. Uh, so this week, the house turned into a construction zone and all my carefully planned interviews and writing time went out the window. And I, it's just been very discombobulating. Those of you who, um, you know, work with tradesmen or, you know, if you have a house or you are a tradesman or whatever, it's, it's a tradesperson, I should say. Uh, it is the timing is never exactly what you want. So I plan all my interviews very carefully and I had to move them all to next week. And I... I was also discombobulated for many other reasons, but (laughs) the audio that you're going to hear in the interview, my audio is not as good as usual because I haven't done an interview for over a month and I I was stressed and we were doing it later and, and I forgot to select the right microphone on my settings and so it's fine, you can hear it, but I'm out of practice and in chaos. But the discussion with Beth kind of feeds into that and it's a good reminder that life happens 
even when we don't plan it. And in fact, we can plan all these things and then something happens. And that might be a health thing, you know, getting COVID like I did last year. Many of you have um, health issues, you know, something happens with your kids or your parents or whatever things happen. And when I planned time out for my Camino, I, I planned a week of grace either side so that I would, you know, kind of, I had to ease out of life and then kind of ease back into life. So this week was meant to be my first week back at full speed, but it just it hasn't turned out like that. And as I discussed with Beth in the interview, we have to accept imperfection and replan as we need to and adapt. I did manage to work on some chapters of my pilgrimage book, which are less reflective and more practical. I'm in that chaos of Scrivener one-liners at the moment. And as a discovery writer for, I guess, both non-fiction and fiction, I, at this stage of the process, it is very chaotic. It looks a bit like our bathroom, which just destruction. (laughs) There's lots of stuff everywhere, but I don't really know how it's going to turn out. I mean, I hope the shower is going to turn out nicely. (laughs) I hope my book is too. But in terms of my Scrivener, I do have a tutorial and you can find that at thecreativepen.com forward slash tools. And essentially, I just throw these one-liners into Scrivener. So I have tons, with just loads of ideas on, and then I start writing bits of paragraphs and then I start knitting it all together. And uh, it's interesting, the book now feels more like it will be the successful author mindset style book, which is practical tips, questions, reflective journal entries, chapters on certain topics. It's not an A to B memoir and it's not a guide to the Camino or any of the particular pilgrimages. So it's emerging and that's okay. And I know how this process goes. Eventually my chaos turns into a book. (laughs) Yay! And so my question to you is, what is in chaos for you? And can you sit with it and have faith in your process that it will make sense eventually? And to, I guess, think about what is emerging for you in this time Or even what is not emerging, because I talk about with Beth, this seasonality, and sometimes with our seasons, you need a fallow period. And I feel like during my uh, Camino, I, I didn't do much other than walk. I mean, obviously, I was tired, but my brain didn't do much either. It kind of entered a a fallow period of walking meditation, I guess, and I I didn't think deeply. (laughs) And that's always an interesting thing. But what happens is almost that emerges afterwards. So I'm still planning a solo episode on it. I'm still processing. Obviously, these things take time. But yes, so my question for you this week, what is in chaos? Or what is still emerging? Or are you entering or do you need a fallow period? So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments over the last week. Lots of comments about my outlining versus discovery writing solo episode with those excerpts from the uh, audiobook. Vivian left a comment, uh, amazing post. I have so often been made to think by reading author's advice that my stories would be better if I planned them beforehand. But I find that so boring. (laughs) When I was at school, we were told we must plan our essays and write our plan to hand in with them. I used to write the essay or story first and then the plan based on what I'd already written, (laughs) which I absolutely love. Most often I know the end of the story, sometimes not. I start writing and carry on until the end. I really enjoy the discovery method and I'm constantly surprised by my characters. So I love that. And I agree, we're so often told that this is the way we have to do things, but it's just not true. If you end up with a finished product, 
story, non-fiction book, book, memoir, poem, whatever it is, painting, whatever it is you end up with, then your process got you there. <laughs> so even if you're like, oh, I should have a better process. Well, yes, <laughs> maybe you can improve it, tweak it. But I do think we probably have a default way of creating and uh, for sure try other things. But don't let people say you should do it that way. Um, in my recent podcast episode with Orna Ross on the Ask Ally show about taking a step back. Uh, we talk about this, about the word should, should not be in the creative space. There are no shoulds, essentially. And Anitha says, I'm so thankful you wrote this post because I've been floundering with my process. Uh, thank you for sharing your own discovery writing process in such detail. It made me accept more of my own in-between process. Your post has given me the confidence that even discovery writing has many nuances. Now I feel happy about the way I write, which is essentially discovery writing, but often entails stepping back when I'm stuck and revisiting the big picture before diving into the scene level again. So that is fantastic Anita thanks for sharing your process and yeah I did I said on that um on the post which is the text of the podcast episode that essentially it's a there's a continuum if you think that the continuum is probably I'd put Jeffrey Diva at the hardcore outlining stage because he writes like a massive outline uh, and then all the way to sort of writing into the dark which Dean Wesley Smith's book is and most of us are somewhere along that continuum. No one is a hundred. Well, some people might be a hundred percent one way or the other, but most of us lie somewhere on that continuum and everything's different. And finally, thanks to Kay, who sent a lovely picture and a video of her and her dog Hathor on the beach on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, saying, listening from the sunny coast down under, Hathor learns a lot from these walks. What a lovely picture. And uh, we actually, Jonathan and I got married on the Sunshine Coast in Noosa back in 2008 now. So yeah, and we used to live in Brisbane, which is obviously near the sun. Well, not obviously if you don't know the geography, <laughs> but near the Sunshine Coast. So yeah, we have very happy memories of that part of the world. So remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com, leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Drafter Digital, and I'll play a word from Kevin Tomlinson in a minute. On a personal note, I use Drafter Digital for distribution to Nook, library services and other minor ebook retailers, as well as using it for payment splitting for the relaxed author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre to all the ebook sites. We publish to all platforms through Drafter Digital and the ebook revenue is auto split between us, which is great. Drafter Digital have also expanded their international print services recently, and uh, that is fantastic for authors outside the US. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time, as ever, is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and especially the Futurist episodes, more coming soon. Thanks to new patrons this week, Casey Lassiter and Lindy Ann Fitzpatrick. Thanks to returning patrons. I know many of you pop in and out of patronage over time. And if you are considering uh, supporting the show, don't worry. It's not like you subscribe and that's forever. People come in for a bit they leave sometimes they come back and uh, they move 
the money up and down. It's all under your control. So it's not like you subscribe forever. And I absolutely understand people popping in and out as things change. But thanks to everyone supporting the show. It does mean an awful lot to me. And, and as you know, I, I do extra things for patrons. You also get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I will, of course, be doing for October in the coming weeks. And I often do extra um, discounts for my courses, ebooks, audiobooks. And you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right. Here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital bringing you DDD smart author tip number 12. Book promotions. Yeah, you heard me. Reaching more readers worldwide on every ebook retailer online is one of the biggest challenges you face as an indie author. And DDD is all about giving you the tools you need to meet all of your self-publishing challenges. That's why we've been building a whole set of tools for you all aimed at helping you reach more readers in more places to increase discoverability for yourself and for your books. From author pages to book tabs, reading lists to scheduled promotions, we've built a whole toolbox to help you with your marketing. And we aren't stopping there. We're actively talking to our retailers to find as many promos as we can and passing them on to you. And as we go, we grow. Building more author marketing tools is part of our mission. Draft to Digital. We are self-publishing with support. Find more at ddd.tips/creativepen. That's pen with two ends because we're big on the numeral 2 around here. Beth Kempton is a Jaffanologist and the author of multiple nonfiction books, including Freedom Seeker, Wabi Sabi, and her latest book, The Way of the Fearless Writer. She also runs multiple creative businesses and is a podcaster, speaker, course creator, and also co-hosts retreats. So welcome, Beth. Thank you so much. What a joy to be here, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, I'm excited to talk to you today. So first up, tell us a bit more about how you became a writer and a creative entrepreneur and also how your experiences in Japan impact your books and business now. It's so funny hearing you do the intro. I feel quite exhausted listening to all those <laughs> things that I do. <laughs> and I think it's really important to say I don't do them all at the same time. I've had my own business for 12 years now and I do a retreat every couple of years or whatever, you know, over that time not done that many and I spread things out. I've done five books in 5 years and that has taken a huge amount of time and attention as as you'll know and I think I I feel quite fortunate that we started our business 12 years ago with online courses really before many people were doing online courses especially in the kind of self-help and personal development arena there was hardly anything around especially on this side of the pond and so it, it's been amazing to have that foundation already built and then the books have kind of come out of that rather than writing a book and having to um, then do all the stuff after that but I just wanted to say that it can I think it can be quite intimidating to hear all that stuff and you know I've got two children at home and do run three businesses but it's the day-to-day is slow progress even when you look back on it and it's it feels like quite a lot so I'm grateful 
absolutely for, <laughs> I mean, I for doing it this way yeah, yeah. I mean, this podcast has been going since 2009 um it's so. amazing <laughs> and, and I think for people who are kind of coming into the arena it can can feel like there's so much catching up to do and there there isn't at all because actually mm. I it was probably the same for you when you started your podcast the technology was so different and so oh like clunky and difficult and expensive and so even if you don't have that particular foundation it's a lot quicker to to start doing new things I think so I'll answer your question now (laughs) no that was a great way to start as well because you're right starting now I mean if you're starting now you might start on TikTok for example and personally I'm not going anywhere near TikTok so I mean it depends when you start but yes tell us more about Japan Yes, sure. So I did Japanese at university, not because I was a linguist, I was the opposite of a linguist, but because I had a massive aha moment when I was 17 that made me ditch all my convictions that I should be an accountant and in the space of a few weeks had to figure out something else to do that would allow me to go on an adventure. And I decided that learning a language would be a good idea and um, except the universities in the UK at the time wouldn't let you study a language at university if you'd not done it at A-level. So I ended up looking at the ones I could do, which kind of got narrowed down to Japanese, Chinese, Arabic and Russian. I did eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> and it's so weird to think of that now because Japan always, even though it's so different to the England or the UK that I grew up in, it's always felt completely familiar in a way I can't really explain. And so I can't imagine that that Eeny Meeny Mimo would ever have worked out any way apart from landing on Japanese because it's always just felt like such a natural fit for me. But I, I went on to, after university, I went and lived and worked in Japan and came back and did a master's in, in Japanese. And then actually my career took me into the corporate world with some connections to Japan, but but much more on the corporate side and it's actually in the world of international sport. And then something happened that I got disillusioned with the corporate world as many people do and that's what led to me setting up my company do what you love I really wanted to have much more direct contact with people to help them figure out ways to make the most of their precious life and to do what they love and actually in the first few years it was really difficult to find a way to weave my Japanese experience and knowledge and everything into my work it felt like it was being forced and the company started with me actually making it the first online course we did was called do what you love and it it shows that you can make an online course out of anything because it was literally my friends always said to me you seem so jammy you have you you I've had some incredible adventures and most of them I haven't paid for you know and I don't mean that people have just given me free holidays but as in just serendipity has happened and I've ended up trading my time for amazing experiences or being somewhere when something crazy's happened because I just said yes to something and my friends kept telling me like that's not normal people that's you know everyone who's coming out of university and going straight into these fast track management programs that that's not how they're living their life and it's really interesting and you should probably tell people about it (laughs) and so that like that very much became the beginning of the company and I built all these courses to help people just make the most of this precious life, which has been a thread through all of my work, including all my books. And I wrote my first book six years into the business after basically having a bit of a meltdown myself. Ironically, the business was doing so well that I was and I had business partners and I just ended up 
following the money I guess it was working really well so we're like let's do more of the things that are working without stopping to think hang on a minute is this am I doing what I love and I had one toddler and a baby I know not baby I was pregnant and one day it all just got too much for me and I just like collapsed on my bedroom floor and just had these visions of this person I used to be which wasn't anywhere near the person I was at that moment and so it became a really big question about feeling free and I thought maybe this is a big enough question to be a book and that led to me writing Freedom Seeker which wasn't Mm. easy but I think taught me how to write a book and then my second book became the opportunity to bring my Japanese experience into the these ideas about how do we live well Mm. um, and, and all that influence I'd some of it by osmosis and some of it by very very hard study at Pixar. Yeah. yeah I love I love what you've told us so far about your sort of career trajectory because it's not a trajectory it's kind of these sort of weaving shapes and you've had ups and downs obviously and you talked about a meltdown there but also uh, you mentioned the word jammy which if people don't know English it was a British English <laughs> I mean sort of <laughs> lucky or yeah. someone who's a bit lucky is a bit jammy all oh, you jammy thing but yeah it's really interesting how you leaned into your passion but also took opportunities as they arose. Now, I wanted to first, before we get into the fearless writer, I wanted to ask about the Wabi Sabi book, because I love this idea. So tell us, what is Wabi Sabi? And how can that attitude help writers and online entrepreneurs, creative entrepreneurs? Well, Wabi Sabi is a beautiful phrase, word in the Japanese language that isn't in the Japanese dictionary, even though every Japanese person I've ever spoken to intuitively knows what it is, which I can't think of a word in English that is the same, that we all know it. And it's really important in our life, but it's not in the dictionary. It's not Mm. slang. And so that made me very curious and also incredibly wary about writing a book about this, essentially defining a term in someone else's language that doesn't have its own definition in that language. And so I hesitate to give one specific definition, but I would say that the definition that we've been using in the West, which is really as an adjective to describe a particular look of objects, um, Wabi Sabi was named a global design trend for things that are kind of natural, organic, warm looking. But the fact that it was named this global design trend shows how little the people using it understood what it meant and that actually it has a very deep meaning and lessons for us all and so after all of my many many conversations and explorations into it I came to see it as meaning three things really it is an intuitive response to beauty the kind of beauty that reminds us of the true nature of things which is why people I think have made this connection and use it as an adjective even though Japanese people don't use it as an adjective because you know a worn old farmhouse table that people have had conversations over for 40 years and that's elbows have rubbed it and all that stuff that's really telling us about how things change in time that that kind of beauty is in it it's not perfect and shiny but there's a real beauty in that piece so that's really where what the the kind of beauty that it refers to but it's also an acceptance and appreciation of the impermanent imperfect and incomplete nature of everything and when we properly think about that and take it on board it's 
just such a relief because the, the word perfect means something is finished, right? But mm. nothing is ever finished. Imperfect, like, in, sorry, impermanence is, is a fundamental kind of rule of nature. Everything is transient. Everything is changing all the time. And so nothing can be perfect because nothing is ever completely finished. And that includes us. We're works in progress. So that it's, it, it's crazy that we should aim for perfection and let this de- complete obsession with perfection get in the way of us putting our creative work out in the world because it's never finished. That acceptance of imperfection is a huge part of any writer's journey, I think. And just to finish off answering the question, the third kind of definition is that it's a reminder of the gifts of a simple, slow and natural way of living, which I think is actually a really lovely approach to creativity as well. You know, we make it really complicated sometimes when we think we have to have all these apps and things and perfectly organised rooms and I don't know what, but we make it complicated when it's really just breathe, write, repeat, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's most well, simple. Well, it's interesting. I think why um, why this resonated with me, I mean, I've just as we record this, I uh, come back from uh, a pilgrimage, which, you know, stepping I away. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I'm stepping away from the business. And I've had quite a lot of emails from people almost asking for permission to do the same thing in the same way that I have asked permission from other creatives, permission and in inverted commas, you know, yeah. we feel like we have to just keep on going. But you mentioned there that worn old table in a farmhouse and, and the imperfection. And I also am very interested in AI technology and robotics and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but we're not the Terminator. I think that's it. Yeah. You can't just go on every Every day, every day, and every day you must yes. write, you must meditate, you must look after yes. your children, you must do your exercise. And like, we're not, that isn't us. We have to embrace the imperfection of being a human, not a machine. And like you said, you lay down on the floor that day having a meltdown, but in a way, that's just your response to doing too much. And yeah. I feel like this idea of Wabi Sabi and the imperfection being beautiful yeah. is something that's so important and but how do you balance that as someone who puts out a finished product? <laughs> like, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, how do you, oh, you, know, thank how you. Do you know that? I mean, oh, I have a story to tell you about that. But this idea of of us as ever changing creative creatures, ourselves as well. I think it's it's really important to allow ourselves to be different versions in a day in a year I mean my work is incredibly seasonal and in terms of when I write and things and it's because I have my you know emotions are different when it's a dark wet winter versus when it's bright shiny sunshine outside and all of that and also as we age what's important to us when we're 20 might be different to what's important or interesting to us as a writer when we're 50 or 80 and I think that's really interesting to pay attention to and not fixate on we, I'm this kind of creative person and I write these kinds of things. And that, again, flies in the face of you have to be known for something. You have to do, you have to be consistent and deliver what people expect. And I think that's a load of rubbish myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think if you do that, you burn out in yeah. your genre and also the reader knows. Yes. And you stop being interested in it, yeah. you know, which is just another the, job. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But to come back to the, the perfection in the, in the books, I'm incredibly lucky that my publisher, Piatkus, do such a beautiful job with them. I mean, this recent one, The Way of the Fearless Writer, it's got this gold sun on it with a reflection on water and it, it's just utterly gorgeous. And they're incredibly professional and there's a very intense process of um 
there's not a lot of editing, but as in it goes through a lot of people checking different things. Ultimately, I 100% take responsibility for what is on the inside of the book. Obviously, I'm consulted on the cover, but the outside of the book is really the publisher's responsibility. But with this particular book, just a week ago, um, I got oh my goodness, I realised that one of the Japanese characters in the book is wrong. And basically, there's a sentence where, well, there's two sentences back to back, where the character in the first sentence has been repeated in the second sentence instead of the correct character being given. And I had that awful knot in my stomach when I realised it's like, oh my goodness, this is just awful. Like I'm trying to, I'm not teaching people Japanese at all and this book is about Mm. helping people to write but I want to give people correct information and then obviously if they're interested in a particular area of what I'm talking about they can dive deeper into that area but I don't want to give people wrong information right and it's only one word out of 50,000 words but for that moment I'm and it's this you know same with a, a typo in English that's when I practiced the teachings from Wabi Sabi and I absolutely did that then and I do it all the time and and it's acceptance is alignment with the truth of the present moment right so what is true about this moment okay there is an error in this printed book who knows how many thousands of copies of this book are already printed because it's coming Mm -hmm. out in a few days time from when I discovered the error they're in the distribution system um that's a fact okay what can I do about it so obviously I let my editor know um and <laughs> well you know you know this is a, a special edition because well thank you yeah, thank this you is, this is how people have always spun mistakes in first edition yes it's like if you get one you're lucky yeah you better rush <laughs> out and get one because I tell you what that print one's going to be done soon and then the next one's not going to be wrong <laughs> exactly but it's so interesting because I it was like, right, what do I need to do? I need to let my editor know and apologise. And I read that finished manuscript, I don't know, 20 times. I paid three individual experts to read it, two of which are Japanese and one is a Japanese professional translator. They did a brilliant job and I don't know how it slipped through all of our net. So I think it's really important for us to take responsibility, but also I'm like, it just happened. And I actually have a page on my website of errors in my books because there's a typo in nearly all of them. And I think that it, it's almost like this is a reminder of imperfection. Okay, it's fine. You did your absolute best and stuff happens. Nobody died. Do better next time if you can, or perhaps you won't because one typo in every book is a really, for someone who wrote a book on Wabi Sabi, it's actually a lovely reminder if you can get over the pain of it and crack on. And I can't believe there's just one. All of us have at least one. But, <laughs> um, but yes, well, let's, uh, let's get into the way of the fearless writer because... I think it's a really daunting title and I feel like fear is such a part of the writing life. So tell us what fears have you had to face and what does fearless mean in this context? Well, to me, fearless writing or writing fearlessly is having the willingness and ability to choose your writing path and write as your authentic self. So there's a whole load of fears connected to speaking your truth in the world for sure. But I think what happens is in many, many cases is that we tend to bring all of our fears to the writing desk. And I don't have a recollection of a single time I've been writing and thinking about how my writing is going to be received in the world or what I want to happen to it in terms of sales or whatever has ever helped me, not once. So for me, a big part of this 
process of becoming a fearless writer is learning to separate which kinds of writing are just for you. And it doesn't mean they'll never get shared but at the point of writing what is not for anyone else's eyes and what kind of writing is eventually intended for somebody else's eyes. And that immediately shuts a huge amount of fears outside the door. There's no place for them because this is just for me. I'm just writing. I'm either writing the junk that's in my head onto the piece of paper or I'm in a space of of deep writing where I you know, I feel like I'm kind of being written and that's all just spilling onto the page. And it's quite, um, it, you can feel incredibly vulnerable because you, what you write can be very raw. It can be incredibly beautiful and you don't understand where it came from. It can be very wise. And if you've never written like that before, it's a very strange experience, but that's where all the gold is. But the thing is, flow in the writing isn't the same as flow in the reading so there's a whole load of work to be done afterwards to get it ready for the outside world if you're editing between brain and page when you're trying to get the juice that's deep inside you onto the page nothing's coming out you're not going to have any problem with anyone criticizing your work because it's not going to get out in the world (laughs) so I think first of all really understanding what what your fears are and where they arise and being able to separate them out and keep them at a distance from your sacred writing spaces is a huge thing to do. And I can genuinely say that I have almost no fear in terms of writing words onto the page, just the writing of words on the page. Any fear that I have, and I think I will have for the rest of my life because it's part of what it is to put your creative work out in the world as a human being is to do with when it's shared with other people. Mm. And there are definitely strategies to help you with that. And I've put lots of them in the book, but um, all, that's where all of my, my fear lies. And when I write books, I write them in, I write nonfiction. So I don't know how well this would work for fiction. I'll, maybe I'll try it one day and come back and tell you. But certainly for nonfiction, I actually write my manuscript in tiny pieces and it's almost put together more like a jigsaw at the end. So I don't have a draft, what somebody would call a first draft until incredibly late in the process, way after maybe maybe a month, six weeks before it gets submitted to the publisher. And I've actually done quite a lot of work shaping smaller pieces before. And then I put them all together and then fiddle with that and so until that point I'm not really thinking much about what's going to happen to when it's out in the world but I I don't want to give the impression that commercial success doesn't make any difference to a writer if you want to make it your full-time job then it might make a difference but even so as a professional writer as in somebody who gets paid I would say author someone who gets paid to write books it's been absolutely essential to be able to learn how to do that. And I didn't with Freedom Seeker and it was so hard, but it makes a huge difference when you can do that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It sounds like you're a discovery writer, which is what I am too, which is I don't necessarily know what I'm going to write before I sit down and write. (laughs) Absolutely. And I know lots of people say they do know, but I would encourage those people to try not knowing because I, I don't think that we can I think to assume that we know the best version of what we could write is almost 
I don't want to say arrogant, but <laughs> I, I know that what comes out when I try not to control it is way better than if I sat here and tried to make my sentence into the thing in my head. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a, there are different types of books and different types of processes and different personalities. But I'm interested in how you, you talk about flow there. You also mentioned your words being written as if they were kind of going through you. So what's your creative process? Are there things that you do to get into a state where you can enter that creativity? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I do go into this in a lot of detail in the way the village writer, the kind of deeper state of writing, which I call liquid state writing. That's the only kind of writing where it feels like I'm being written. I'm really not in control of it in terms of um, as soon as I'm aware that I'm doing it, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm thinking about it. It's quite like meditation, to be honest. You enter that kind of writing. And I believe anyone can do this. This is I don't think it is anything to do with personality or anything like that. I think it's it's about creating a mindset that you can have a sacred writing space. And that doesn't mean a physical space necessarily, but a quiet place where you metaphorically or actually shut the door on the outside world and all the noise and you enter this space. And how you enter that space will depend on what you like. But for example, you can use some simple breathing. I mean, literally just in, out, slowly, deeply. I don't mean a complicated breathing technique. Just breathing slowly and deeply to center yourself and bring yourself into that writing experience. You might like to light a candle because the the lovely thing about a candle is that you open the experience with a candle. And then when you blow out that candle, you're rounding off the ritual at the end. So it feels like a lovely circular thing. And then I often use a spark, like a kind of catalyst for the writing, which gives you a very, very loose direction but essentially it's not to control what you're writing it's to take you away from getting stuck in what's in your head so if you only do journaling and you only spill what you can see in your head like all the things you're worried about or the things that you're ruminating about if you only journal and put those on the page you can get stuck in a cycle of only ever talking about that but if you have a beautiful ritual like this and then your spark is something like a poem written by somebody else or a question or a beautiful paragraph from a nature book or anything at all and then you just read it to yourself out loud or or just on the page and then you start to write and it's incredible what comes out sometimes you don't even have to have a spark you could just write I often do this I very often get up at five or I'm at my desk at five in the morning because I have two little children and it's such a gorgeous time of day and I make a really big effort to not have strong sensory stimulus between getting out of bed and getting to my desk so I go downstairs in the dark and have very low lighting make my tea have a stretch and then go to my writing desk without I absolutely not checking email or my phone Mm. or but even putting on music, to be honest, and just trying to keep myself as close as possible to that special state of kind of just waking up. And then if you have a ritual at that time, it for I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to do it at five o'clock in the morning. You can do it whenever you like. But I think part of that for me is because I've been doing it for such a long time. But in that period of quiet and darkness, I think can really help as well. It's amazing 
what comes out. So I would really encourage people to try it, but also to, to round off that ritual, to blow out the candle or repeat the breathing that you did at the beginning, whatever, and then open the door and go back into your life, knowing that you've had this time for your writing, whether it's 10 minutes or two hours or whatever it is, and just develop it as a practice without feeling all the time like, I've got to write a book or I haven't published a blog post in ages or I need to do X, Y, Z. I mean, just to enjoy it. And I promise that over time there will be gems in what you come up with and you'll fall in love with it if you've fallen out of love with it. Mm, I think it's so important. And it reminds me actually of Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art talks about his prayer to the muse uh, Mm. that he has. I have a a painting on my wall it's very small and it is my muse that I have here next to me and I think as you you talk there I mean even if people if you don't have a specific part of your house you can go somewhere else or just anything to make that writing time more special and like you're basically honoring a creative part of yourself in a special way that almost separates it from the job of being a writer which you also do and you have your businesses and everything but I like that you've created almost like just a separation between the creativity and then the job yeah it's so true I don't I don't light a candle before I send an email to my editor yeah, <laughs> I, mean, well, I didn't light a candle before talking to you sorry Beth I, oh, I did light a candle before talking to you oh, I did go. yeah um I, but I yeah it's totally um it, it's so true and I think one of the things to talk about in the book is the idea of desirelessness and not having a fixed idea or attachment to particular results and that both meet that's both what a piece of writing will become and I really struggled that with my first book I really I, I wanted it to be a massive bestseller and I wanted it to be the perfect book and all of this and it's it turned out to be I think a much better book than the one I had in my head but I had to surrender any of those notions before I actually managed to write anything, but also having any fixed idea of what something of what success is going to look like specifically. And it doesn't mean it's not valuable to visualize seeing your book in a bookshop because that can help, that can help it feel more real. But what I'm talking about is saying, if it's not a Sunday times top 10 bestseller, it's a failure. And it is that specific kind of, um that's the only metric that's gonna make me think it's worth something letting letting go of that for the writing part of the job absolutely does not mean not being strategic and savvy in the business part of the job so I absolutely have a plan and I absolutely build my network and my community and make you know do everything I can to get the word out without having being attached to a particular way that that is going to unfold or what success for that book is going to look like. For me, the success of that book has already happened. I got to spend four months of my life exploring a really interesting question, walking up and down the river, having coffee, talking to interesting people, learning more about the things I love. So it's already successful to me. And I got paid to write it, which is a bonus, you know. So, But in my business, I'm incredibly strategic that's my job and so you can be both things but I think what's really important to do is to not attach not connect the writing the sacred writing process with the outcomes in the material world it it makes a huge difference 
Mm, absolutely and there's so much in in your books and uh, as I told you I got a, a review copy but I've also ordered several in hardback oh, <laughs> so, because you. I found them really valuable for my own reminding me about what I already know so much of this stuff is reminding ourselves of what we already know and coming back to things so yeah that really helped me I wanted to mention it but the, but I do want to just before we run out of time I do want to ask you about the business side yeah. you mentioned you have three businesses obviously you've got do what you love and you've got other things you produce all this content you have a family and you sound like a multi-passionate creative which I am too you know can't just do one thing but how do you balance your time and also almost switch heads like to me that sacred creative space is a different head to like the person who's talking to you now this is like a different head to my JF Penn fiction writer head for example so how do you balance your time and switch between all these different facets? Well I think the most important thing is I talk a lot to my family about it and so we very much kind of approach it like a team like we're all building something together including our children and so they're them being quiet or doing a drawing while I'm doing an interview or something they understand that's connected to what we're trying to make and my husband's actually my partner in the business so that helps as well for sure but um, I think communication is a huge thing and then in terms of the actual time on an annual basis it's very seasonal for me I've got into a lovely rhythm of winter so January to April so kind of winter to very early spring is when I write my books I tend to have about six months to write a book Um, and I usually get a pitch in autumn and then I get the deal in kind of late November December and then January to April it's written and then like my next deadline is May the 1st and during that time the teams of the two businesses that are not my main do we love business one is makeartthatsells.com it's an online art school and one's makeitindesign.com which is a online design school they have teams they're like staffed fully and they those teams are brilliant and they know that they can if they I only email on Wednesdays so if they need something from me it needs to be in my inbox by Wednesday morning and if it's not clear they can't come back to me on Thursday or they have to wait until the next Wednesday or figure it out themselves. And it's actually been amazing for the teams. Everyone's completely stepped up and it's only worked because I've really stuck to it. Like if I started emailing them on Friday, then it's just confusing for everyone. And so for that time, it works. And both my business partners have written books as well. So that helps because they understand. And I couldn't do that all year round and run my businesses for sure. But I think it's because it's such a concentrated period of time. It's easy to explain and then spring and summer it's a very different energy and I'm very connected with my community and I teach a lot and I'm very involved in the business and we do all our annual planning for the businesses in the summer so we plan January to December the following year in the summer and we have our biggest sales of the year for all the businesses in November so we need to know everything we're going to be selling the following year in order to have it in the sale in November. So that means the teams can then use from summer up to November to get ready for the big sales, that kind of thing. So then, so spring and summer, I'm doing all that and planning the promotion for my books, which then tend to come out in October. And then I tend to do podcasting from October to December and then close the door, get my cup of tea and go back to the writing desk. 
<laughs> so that's the kind of year. And then on a like day-to-day basis between May and December, when I am doing both, I'm actually more likely to have the five o'clock in the morning start because in January to April, I might be writing eight hours in a row. So not necessarily doing the super early start sometimes, but it's dark, you know, mm. <laughs> very dark and cold and wet. So I could do the same at 6.30 and it still looks the same. It still looks the same at five, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, so I would then... Day to, like during the week I do definitely block out chunks of time I'm quite good at not flitting from one thing to another and anytime I feel overwhelmed it's because I've stopped doing one thing at a time and my husband's constant he literally put on a post-it on my computer the other day like one thing at a time <laughs> and I plan ahead a lot so the launch for this book was October launch you know I was I was making content for that in June so it's all very so it doesn't feel like a big rush and that's come from hard experience for sure so we always try and encourage all of our staff to not overwork and to stick to the their job description and not do more than they need to and if something's not working then to tell us about it rather than just do loads of work because obviously it didn't work out well for me when I ignored that and so I think we have, we have a good balance and I say no to an awful lot of things so from January to April I do almost no media interviews because my personality is that that takes up a huge amount of psychic space I'd much rather someone sent me an email and gave me three days to reply to them and I could just write it you know um to like a live big interview or something or a big event speaking on a stage I don't I, I can do it but it just takes me a lot of headspace to prepare for it because I want to do a good job and that's the control freak in me who I've been working very hard to <laughs> shift to the side so I think being aware of, of that is really important for some people they there's nothing they love more than talking to someone and wouldn't bat an eyelid to just jump straight on a podcast and then so that's not a consideration for them but I think I understand myself quite well in in terms of how I work and try and play to that um, rather than force something yeah as a writer I think it's really important as well to talk about that as a writer there is so many ways to get your words out in the world it's a particular kind of media that makes you so terrified you can't get out from under your desk and you lose like three weeks to anxiety then just don't do it like nobody says you have to do a podcast interview or whatever you're a writer if you want if all you ever want to do is write about your words and never speak about them that is possible and I think it comes back to that permission thing doesn't it it's good to push Mm. yourself because they're all great opportunities but if it's damaging to you it's also okay to not do it Mm. no fantastic and in fact you're the the gate of formlessness part of the book is this aspects of water and creativity which you talked a bit about liquid writing but I guess with water as well it kind of it finds its own level and you can try and box it in but you're going to get leaks and I say that because we've got a leak in our bathroom (laughs) talking about before water on the brain (laughs) yeah I do we totally have it but it's but I like I, I respect that you have found ways to say no and that you've learned what works for you. And I feel like, again, I feel like these are things I know about myself, but I keep having to remind myself, like speaking as well. Like you said, I really struggle to be in a very large, in crowds, basically. So big events. And I recently decided not to go to an um, an event in Las Vegas because I just, I just can't deal with it. It's just exhausting. And then I yeah. get sick. So we have to learn to say no. And like, it sounds like you've been able to to do that really well. Did you always have that or did you learn that over the time you've been have, running your own business? 
Oh, no, I definitely didn't know it. Definitely. I've learned it from it going all, all sorts of wrong. And also, I think because I was a lot more confident when I was young in terms of talking on stage and things like that, um, I, I just didn't bother me. And then the older I've got, the more I have to, I don't know, I just overthink it maybe. But I, I think what, it's so interesting to hear you say that because when I think of you, I think of someone who does an awful lot of events. And one thing that we often don't do, I think in the same way that a freelancer might have an hourly rate for something that they produce, but don't take into consideration the, you know, prep time or the whatever time or somebody who goes to work in office doesn't take into account the value of the time it takes them to get there, whatever. We often undercut our own value just thinking about the time on the job. And I think when it comes to doing things like speaking, if it's not completely natural and an utter joy for you and it doesn't and it gives you energy which obviously certain personality types if it drains your energy then that recovery time needs to be built into how many days you're giving to this job and is it worth it like what Mm. is the opportunity cost of that if it takes you two weeks to recover and you could have been writing in that time then maybe maybe it is because it is a one-off unbelievable event but maybe it's not and and I think the older I get the more I realize that we get to choose like we literally and surely if you're running your own business one of the reasons is probably because you want to be able to choose and it's there's there isn't somebody who sat around the corner waiting for you to come around and they're going to go oh yeah yeah you don't have to do that you have to give that permission to yourself (laughs) absolutely no I feel like we could talk about this forever but we are out of time so where can people find your books and everything you do online Oh, thanks, Joanna. The Way of the Fearless Writer is is my new book. And I'm just about to launch the Fearless Writer podcast, which will run weekly until Christmas with a writing exercise in it. So please do come and listen to that. It will be on iTunes and Spotify from October 11th. Maybe after this is already out, it might already be out there. You can go and listen. I'm on Instagram at Beth Kempton and all my courses are at dowhatyoulovefullife.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Beth. That was great. Thank you. And thank you for your generosity, Joanna. Your shining light. I know you've helped so many people. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Beth. It's good to revisit what we already know, but may have temporarily forgotten. (laughs) I need to get back into my creative routine, writing in the early morning without doing anything else. And like I said, I've been a bit discombobulated this week. I also love the concept of wabi-sabi and the acceptance of imperfection. So please let me know what you think in the comments on the blog or YouTube channel or tweet me at The Creative Pen. So coming up next week, I'm talking to Maria Brito about how creativity rules the world. And Maria comes from the world of visual art in New York. So she is a fascinating guest. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.